To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It appears Fitch was the motivation negotiators may have needed here in Washington. Of course, putting the U.S. on rating watch negative because of the brinksmanship. And we're hearing some more optimistic commentary today. Go figure. Listen to Congressman Patrick McHenry, who was quite... The pessimist a couple of days ago. She's the chair of the Financial Services Committee in the House and, of course, helping to lead negotiations for Republicans. Telling reporters today in the corridors of Congress, he is not pessimistic. And there is, quote, alignment on what we need to work on, unquote. Listen to McHenry. I think we've been close for uh, six or seven days. Uh, the issues are thorny. They're difficult. Um, there is the will to get a deal. There is the will to get a deal. Knowing that members are getting on airplanes today and may be pulled back to Washington at any moment. Let's get it up to date here with Zach Cohen, Bloomberg Government Congress reporter, joining us at the top here with the latest. Zach is in touch with the leadership, with the negotiating teams. And it feels like we're getting close to something here, Zach. I don't know what the timeline is going to be exactly, but if they can figure out a deal today, Maybe tomorrow that would give the weekend to to print the paper and set things up for a vote early next week. Is that what you're hearing? It could be. They might wait until next week maybe to, to bring out a bill and then, you know, give members the 72 hours to come back home from the Memorial Day recess to actually vote on that bill and then send over to the Senate, who's also coming back on Tuesday. I think it's all still very much in flux. I think it's not, it's not lost on us that a lot of these talks happened yesterday. Uh, over at the executive uh, offices over at the by the West Wing rather than yeah. on the Hill. And I was talking to one uh, former um, Trump administration legislative liaison who pointed out, look, this is a really easy way to get more into the nitty-gritty of these kinds of negotiations than you normally would be able to when you're talking, you know, just principles over in Congress. So they're definitely, you know, getting down to brass tacks, and there's less of the sort of you know, partisan recriminations going back and forth. And I think usually in Washington, people stop talking, the real conversations are happening. And I think that's my, my, what we're seeing here. Got it. Uh, you mentioned the fact that talks moved to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. And I know Patrick McHenry had suggested they were taking place in the House because Republicans said, quote, the upper hand. Uh, is, is that what you're referring to? What does that mean that it went over to, to a four-hour session at the White House? Yeah, I think, you know, a longer meeting is always good news, right? Because, you know, four hours of just yelling at each other doesn't really get a lot done. <laughs> it makes me think that they probably got into a little more detail than they typically do. A lot of their meetings have, you know, been an hour or two hours, you know, mm-hmm. kind of touch glove moments probably just to get a sense of where folks are and then going back to their principles and getting a, you know, a sense of where they think they can get to a deal. But yesterday's meeting probably got them closer, and a lot of the folks came out of that meeting with a lot more optimism about getting to a deal. I do think, you know, getting something done by June 1st is still going to be really tricky, just mm-hmm. given the fact that there is no bill yet. You know, there, nothing's been filed, and right. the House is leaving. I mean, you know, it's very quiet around here, here on Capitol Hill right now. And so <laughs> you're going to need to bring folks back. 
vote on a bill, go through all the procedural rigmarole. And so we're still at least a couple of days off from something going to Biden's desk for his official signature. They're on call for the weekend here, right? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I'll tell you what, nobody wants to be pulled out of the Memorial Day parade. I'll be curious to see if it comes to that point. Uh, Zach, you reminded us yesterday uh, on Balance of Power uh, about what happened in 2011. Lawmakers went home, uh, I believe it was August, in the throes of the Obamacare debate, and they were faced by Tea Party protesters that made a lot of them change their tune or at least galvanized views on that before they came back to Washington. Do we risk seeing the same thing happen? Yeah, in like 2009, the Obamacare fights, and then 2017 over the repeal. You know, there was when you send members back home to talk to their constituents, they're reminded of why they're here in Washington in the first yep. place. They're going to hear, you know, you got to spend less, or you got to stop the Republicans, whatever, whichever side you're on. Yeah. Um, I'm, I am reminded of 2011 when there was a, you know, a cre- sort of you know, a credit downgrade, and that kind of compelled negotiators to come to a deal. Uh, then it was a, uh, you know, then Vice President Joe Biden and uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that got to that deal. And so I think we might be seeing something similar, too, now with uh, Fitch talking about potentially downgrading yeah, exactly. the U.S.'s AAA bond rating. Well, let's, uh, let's hope the, uh, the town halls, if they're holding any this time, uh, go okay. Zach, thanks for ju- uh, chiming in. Zach Cohen, Bloomberg Government Congress reporter, as we add the voice now of Greg Valier, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. I can see your eye roll from here, Greg. I know you've lived through a couple of these. Do you see a deal emerging in the next day or two? Maybe. I, I, my eyes are not rolling too much, Joe. I no? think that Zach got it right. I think that we're probably a few days away from an agreement in principle. But we've only got a week to go, and I think that to put everything in legislative language uh, to assuage concerns on the part of Democrats and Republicans might take a little longer than June 1st or 2nd. It might go into mid-June. I think they, I've been saying for quite a while, I think there'll be a, an extension Yes. A week or two, and I still think there will be. There's going to have to be, right? But that's got to come after a deal, because I imagine yep. no one has the stomach for that now, because everybody <laughs> promised there wouldn't be a short-term solution, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think anyone's going to rescind, but you've got to get it all in legislative uh, language. Uh, so it, it's not we're not quite there yet, and a lot of things could blow it up. I think the Democrats are angry. I think they feel that Biden may capitulate, and that a lot of Democrats may balk. But we're getting closer. Yeah, angry uh, indeed. We spoke uh, just the other day with Congressman Jim McGovern, a progressive Democrat from Massachusetts who is uh, constantly beating the drum on on beating the hunger crisis in this country. And he's upset about work requirements, among other things. Here he is in the briefing room yesterday. You know, Moody's says that their debt ceiling bill will kill 780,000 jobs. So they're killing jobs but saying you have to get a job if you want any of these benefits. I mean, what the hell is wrong with these people? I mean, this is unconscionable. It is unjust. It is just mean. It is a rotten thing to do. Let me just say this. Democrats are not going to vote for a bill that screws poor people uh, while protecting rich people and paving the way for another tax cut for billionaires. Period. End of story. Those were Jim McGovern's Democratic colleagues clapping, not the reporters who were in the gallery, but Greg... Uh, The president of the United States stands to lose a good swath of progressive Democrats here, much like Kevin McCarthy stands to lose a swath of conservative Republicans in the House. Is that a foregone conclusion? Well, it's pretty likely, and that's a major reason why this is not a done deal yet. You could see in both parties, conservatives and liberals, saying that this is not what we signed up for. So I, I still think we have a ways to go. 
And again, I think that this will go into June and it will require an extension. What's the remaining uh, item that's holding this up? Is it, is it spending caps? Does everything else fall together once they arrive at a number? I think it's pretty much the caps. I'm not sure they've got an agreement on how long that will they really last for 10 years. I'm not sure they're, they're there yet, and it's going to Don't take uh, a lot of negotiations. The White House wants two years. Mm-hmm. So th- there's still, I think, a long way away on that provision. Great to have you back, Greg. Thank you. Greg Valley, you're the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. The ground is shifting under our feet here. You know, you want to keep your eyes on the terminal, keep your ears on Bloomberg Radio, because as soon as you think you know what's going on, something changes. And we've had repeated gaggles throughout the day, the last couple of days from the speaker, from the negotiators. So a lot could happen between now and the end of the day. Let's assemble our panel for their take on things. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are back with us here on the Thursday edition. The story hasn't changed too much here, Jeannie, but to Greg's point, uh, progressives are upset. They're getting seems progressively more upset. Even as Patrick McHenry, and maybe that's why, signals that we could be on the verge of a deal here. It's just a question of who's going to vote for it, right? That's right. And we are hearing that Democrats are really worried that the White House is giving away the store. Everything they worked for in the first two years of the Biden administration, they feel many of them is now at risk, which means it is going to be an uphill battle for Jeffries and his team to get the support they need to push this through. That said, you're hard pressed to imagine that enough Democrats defect and go against the White House, because at this point, as you were just talking about, their backs are really up against the wall. But I think the reality is this is going to make the president increasingly unpopular with the Democrats, particularly on the progressive side in the Mm -hmm. House. Again, depending on how this thing turns out, because we still don't know what this agreement is going to look like. If he gives away too much, they are not going to be happy. Um, But, you know, on the Republican side, we are hearing people, even Kevin Hearn, saying we may see a deal as early as tomorrow. And you could call these members back within 24 hours. So there is some positive news on the horizon. You don't get too comfortable at home, right? Uh, Rick, the speaker uh, had an interesting line today because you know that Joe Biden likes to talk about the the ultra MAGA Republican Party. He says this is not your grandfather's or your father's Republican Party. Here's what the speaker says about Democrats. The difficult part is the Democrats today are not the same Democrats. They're very extreme. They're much more on the socialist wing. We see them up their anger right now against the president when he's trying to curb spending at the same time negotiating with me. That's not productive, but it's, it's really challenging. They're very, they're very extreme from the socialist wing. Rick, does it, does it come down to the fact that both parties kind of have the same problem here? Yeah, they, both parties do have the extreme wings who are not forgiving uh, in their positions. And, and and look, they were amplified by their leadership. Uh, you know, uh, the president said, oh, I'm not going to negotiate for anything. I'm just going to do a clean debt limit, uh, debt ceiling increase when everyone knew that he wasn't going to get a clean debt ceiling uh, increase. And the same with McCarthy, who, you know, passed this bill that gave everything that he p- could have possibly given to the Freedom Caucus and the MAGA wing. And knowing that he was never going to get that bill signed by the president of the United States. And so, you know, they're feeding the 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 wings of their party. Uh, uh, and then they shouldn't be shocked when they then don't like a negotiated outcome. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's their own fault. Well, how true. Uh, look, Democrats, to your point, Jeannie, are getting upset with the narrative. They think that Joe Biden lost the narrative, that he's been painted into a corner here, uh, a rhetorical corner here, I guess, by Republicans 
Uh, Pramila Jayapal chairs the Progressive Caucus in the U.S. House. Listen to her talking to reporters yesterday who are asking her about the brinksmanship. They are willing to tank it. They no, 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 no. Sorry. That is exactly the problem is when the media reports this as not their fault. And I'm just going to say, I know so many of you, I have so much respect for what you do, but let's tell the truth here. We are not tanking anything. The debt ceiling has been raised because we have an appropriations process, and during the appropriations process, the budget process, we negotiate. The Republicans can try to get whatever they they can there, but then we agree. No, this is important. The American people should hear this. Then we agree on spending. Republicans agree. Democrats agree. We decide. We appropriate money based on what Congress has passed. Legislation that we pass in this body. That is democracy. And then when it's time, the debt ceiling is raised to accommodate what we have already passed. Jeannie, that is the sound of exasperation. Uh, coming from the chair of the Progressive Caucus. What does Joe Biden say to them? You know, and I think exasperation, understandably so. And I think the the president is empathetic to what they are saying. The reality is you raise the debt ceiling to pay for what you already spent. Then you talk about future spending. And Democrats have long felt this. They are being pushed against the wall, that they are asked to do both at the same time. And if they don't, they will be somehow blamed for not raising the debt ceiling and going into default. When the reality is you should raise it. It shouldn't even be there. But if you have it, you should raise it to pay for what you spent. And then you talk about spending and Republicans have bungled, you know, put this together because they know that the cuts they want are really, really devastating. And by the way, we still don't know exactly what the implications of those are. And I would guess many Republicans, once we see those line items, once we see the appropriations Mm. specific, they are not going to be too happy with where those cuts are either. But we don't see that now. And that's, I think, the exasperation. But the reality is, Congress is working this way or not working this way, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot to be done about it at this point. Well, progressives were already pretty upset with this president over the border. We've heard a lot of criticism uh, coming from that corner, uh, certainly in the House. Also in the Senate, though, Bob Menendez has been dinging the president on this uh, for months as well, Rick. And then you go back to Build Back Better. Remember that? It was Pramila Jayapal again at the podium questioning Uh, The president's intentions on this, as so many uh, items that progressives wanted, uh, were left on the floor. And, of course, that bill never became law anyway. Does he have a problem with progressive Democrats? Well, sure. I mean, he has a problem inside the House, right? I'm not sure he has a problem running for reelection with progressive Democrats. I don't think he has a problem, you know, building a coalition to be able to get things done in the House. Probably a bigger problem in the Senate where Folks like, you know, Joe Manchin and, and mm-hmm. Kristen Cinema have kept, you know, the Democrats sort of at bay. But the reality is that um, he's got the political coalition he needs. Uh, they're not going to go anywhere else. There's not going to be a, uh, a candidate that runs against him from the left that's going to have any efficacy. So uh, he just needs to get through this legislative uh, morass that he's in. And, and they're not any help to him whatsoever. Feels like we've been here before. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So did you get on Twitter spaces last night? Did you hear Ron DeSantis launch his presidential campaign? Those are two separate questions uh, as it turns out, as the big show with Elon Musk was hampered by technical difficulties. Uh, there's 382,000 people on. All right, great. So let's see. There he is. Keep crashing, huh? Keeps crashing. Yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people yeah. online, so it's um, servers are straining somewhat. Uh, servers are straining. Um, Captain, she can't take anymore. This went on for like 20 minutes. Hello. There was coughing and random people mentioning things. Uh, they didn't get it together for like another 20 minutes in a different space with many fewer people listening. Biden's allowed woke ideology to drive his agenda. We will never surrender to the woke mob and we will leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history. So the woke message got out and Governor DeSantis took questions for the better part of an hour. Even with the failure to launch, at least initially. And somewhat tongue-in-cheek, the DeSantis campaign put a whole new video together, separate from the slick-produced video announcing his campaign to claim that they broke the Internet. Hi, this is Governor Ron DeSantis. I'm running for President of the United States to lead our great American comeback. We announced that on Twitter spaces earlier tonight, and it broke the Internet. Broke the Internet. Because so many people were excited about being on that Twitter space. Who knew the governor had something in common with Kim Kardashian? But you better believe Donald Trump was watching. The president was, too. President tweets, this link works, with a link to his donation page. But the social media team was busy watching this in real time. Donald Trump, for instance, posted this on Truth Social. They actually cobbled together with, I don't know, they put actors in a room or something, uh, their version of what happened. Who needs SNL with this kind of stuff? Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Ron DeSantis Twitter space. Hello? Is my microphone working correctly? George, what? can you just wait while we... Hello? Can you hear me? We can all hear you, George. Can you just hold on for a second? This is not real. I don't think they can hear me. <coughs> See the coughing. I don't think microphone. George knows how to use Twitter. Talking about George Soros, if you looked at it, they actually had an image. George Soros is on there. Hitler, the devil. Hello. Just shut up, George. Can somebody yeah. just mute George? <laughs> I feel like Dick, could you try not to cough on that? And then Joe Biden had his own version. The White House actually put something together here. That was something that that we were very proud to do. So I would embrace proposals, um, you know, with the sound of DeSantis talking about different issues. And then this. (laughs) Stop the feedback. But that's actually kind of what it sounded like. Let's reassemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. 
Rick, I'm sure this is not the way you would have launched a presidential campaign. Well, I did say yesterday that we'd be talking more about Musk today than we were DeSantis. I had no idea that we'd actually be talking more about Twitter spaces than we were talking about Musk and DeSantis. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it it is not the way to uh, start a uh, campaign. Uh, The pre-campaign wasn't a particularly good outing either. So I would say uh, uh, maybe unlike most campaigns uh, that have been launched so far in the Republican side, DeSantis still has to prove that he can campaign. And so I think that's usually a pretty low bar, but that seems to have been raised in his case. Boy. Um, so how do you recover from something like, by the way, everyone should know Jeannie was giving uh, me real time updates during this. We had to, we were texting each other just as sort of a support group. Uh, you heard the whole thing, Jeannie, you were one of those numbers on there that they're taking credit for helping to break the internet. What do you do now? If you're Ron DeSantis, Boy, Joe, I was texting you. I texted Rick. I, you know, I got on. I was pushed off. I was thrown into somebody's space with men and women talking. I didn't know where I was. There's no Twitter spaces on the homepage. I, I found it again. I got in. There was the, you know, all the coughing and the hot mic moments. It, it was very confusing, but I did stick through the whole thing and I was messaging you. And, um, you know, so, you know, if you talk about, uh, you know, his major calling card seems to to be that he's electable and that mm-hmm. he can keep the trains running on time because he can execute when he governs. I'm not so sure this is the rollout that they wanted. In fact, I'm uh, sure it's not. Yeah. It is going to become a metaphor for a botched, <laughs> launched, and a botched campaign. He's re- It's recoverable, but boy, was it a mess. And, you know, he was trying to stick it to the establishment traditional media. I that's think right. he did exactly the opposite because one could say that when he went on Fox with Trey Gowdy, that's, that's right. where he should have started. It was normal. You could Indeed. understand. You want to appeal to people in Iowa. They're older. They're, you know, not as much on Twitter. Fox was the place to go. Who knew? It, well, maybe a lot of people. Knew. Here's what Here's what I think our listeners need need to hear about, though, Rick. I mean, when you're running a presidential campaign. Uh, there are ways to do this. I mean, if if you, let's say there's a world in which you did sanction such a campaign launch, there'd be an advance crew, right? There would be a dry run somewhere on Twitter. They apparently took Elon at his word that this would all work. Yeah, no, this is uh, not for primetime players uh, running this campaign. Uh, it's a it's a mostly Florida crowd that haven't had a lot of experience in the national arena. Maybe things that work in Tallahassee don't necessarily work in other venues around the world. Uh, just a lot of miscalculations. And as you point out, Joe, a, a real lack of preparation. I mean, you would have tested this out, uh, you know, with all due respect to uh, the massive meltdown of their servers, uh, 500,000 people signed on is not a lot of people uh, for a server. Uh, and and, and, and 250,000 that ultimately uh, were there by the time the candidates showed up uh, uh, in the broadcast uh, is is a scintilla of what a normal TV audience for prime time would be in any other network. I mean, even NBC gets a bigger rating than than two hundred and fifty thousand people. So yes, the reality is, um, none of this makes any sense. I mean, in after <laughs> after the fact, you look at this and say, you know, what were they thinking in Tallahassee? This is a this is a really botched effort. And it just shows the lack of experience, experience that the, the campaign team uh, put their candidate in, in a very awkward position. Well, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, tweeted a new nickname 
last evening. This is right in the middle. It was at 6.20 p.m. where they're trying to figure out, you know, what, what to plug in and what to reboot. He tweeted simply hashtag disaster. I wonder if that one sticks. And his dad was quick to come out with a video on social media, too. Rob DeSanctimonious and his poll numbers are dropping like a rock. I would almost be inclined to say these are record falls. The question, is Rob just young and experienced and naive or, more troubling, is he a fool who has no idea what the hell he's doing? We already have one of those in office. We don't need another one. He's a fool who has no... uh, Wow, uh, Jeannie. Uh, Did Donald Trump have the best night of his campaign last night? (laughs) He had a pretty good one. I liked the, dis- dis- I can't say it the way you do, disaster, but faster. Yes, yes, <laughs> and right. There was a lot of debacles, because I guess you don't want your name beginning with D-E at this no, point. No, you really don't, it <laughs> turns the, out. The, the Trump truth that I didn't understand, and Joe, maybe you can explain me, was the one, Rob, my red button is bigger, better, stronger, and is working. Yours does not. I didn't understand. I try to make sense for you. That truth no was idea. beyond me. I'm still not sure what he was talking about. So it was a typical Donald Trump. He he got a lot of play on this. And, you know, it, it was fascinating because with all of this, Ron DeSantis didn't even take it to Donald Trump directly. Right. He did not really mention him, apparently, until he spoke with journalists on this call afterwards. And, you know, the 250,000 people were gone. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of head scratching when you're down by 30 points. Unreal. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted, by the way, after the DeSantis event, quote, all presidential candidates are most welcome on this platform. I believe it was Rick Davis who compared him to David Letterman. This is apparently going to I just wonder if how many, if any, take the bait on this. But it brings us back to 1980. Remember this, the DNC, when the balloons wouldn't drop? Jimmy Carter. As heard on ABC News that night. Hat tip to Howard Mortman for posting this, by the way. It certainly brought us back. Jimmy Carter's looking up at the ceiling. The balloons won't fall. Give that thing a shake. Come on, the band's play. We're trying to launch a campaign here. Peter Jennings, hey, bail me out. Getting the balloons down. You can see that large boxcar thing at the top of your screen. They are... One is stuck. One is stuck, and the other is only partially opening, so... What we're getting is a kind of waterfall of balloons. A waterfall of balloons. There were no balloons, however, on Twitter. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, many thanks, as always, our signature panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Haley, we've got more news. It's coming from the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue this time. Uh, yep. Speaker McCarthy and Congressman Patrick McHenry, the chair's financial services, were speaking optimistically. Although interesting, <laughs> McHenry said, I'm not pessimistic, which yeah. I guess means he's optimistic. I don't know. I feel like there's a distinction to be <laughs> dla- drawn between not pessimistic and optimistic because pretty- he specifically didn't say that he was optimistic. He also earlier said that there was alignment on the work they needed That's to do, right. which is another way of saying that they're still unaligned on well, some I things, guess right? so, yeah. yeah. I, it's like the difference between mostly cloudy and partly sunny, but still. <laughs> uh, 
But now the, the president's the talking. The president's talking. I like the sound. I believe we will come to an agreement. Speaker yeah. McCarthy kind of said as much yesterday. Yeah, but he then the president went on to say that the negotiations with McCarthy now are about budget outlines and yeah. that he put forward a proposal to freeze spending for two years. But this is what we keep coming back to, this idea that freezing spending is not going to be enough for no. the Republican side. Going to be cutting spending. Yep. Uh, and I don't know exactly how that's all going to work out. Um, no one does. In fact, Patrick McHenry was saying it. Everyone's being is an expert on this. Mm. Everybody's talking about the finer details. We have the ones in the room have no idea <laughs> what those details are going to be. Yeah. And then we need to figure out what the result of those details is. Right. Because we are so worried about getting a deal. But when a deal is done, if spending cuts are included in theory, that's going to have an impact on the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. So Mark Zandi uh, did some research on this couple of weeks back what if limit save grow passed Mm -hmm. as written and it was pretty tough it was actually more damaging to the job market than what bloomberg economics came up with this week anna wong told us five hundred seventy thousand jobs would be lost i believe mark had a couple hundred thousand more than that yep and i wonder his thoughts on this warning you saw what fitch has to say too yeah fitch ratings putting the u.s's triple a credit rating on watch negative Mm mm-hmm so not a downgrade, but, but it's also a not a good reminder sign. that everybody's watching here. Yep. Mark Zandi, of course, is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He's been a busy guy lately. Every time I look up, there's Mark Zandi. Uh, it's great to have you back here, Mark. Uh, just before we get into the the impact of a potential deal, what are you hearing? What's your thought here when Fitch drops a a news release like that? Drops a warning like that? It seems to motivate people. Well, Judge, good to be with you, uh, Kaylee. Um, I'll have to tell you, I'm getting more nervous. Um, yeah, um, just talking to folks in D.C., both on the Hill and you know, uh, and the administration, it just feels like this thing can really go off the rails. Uh, the, the politics are just so vexed. You know, the speaker's got a pretty tough group. Uh, of uh, folks on the on the right, uh, the Freedom Caucus, and of course the president's got the folks on the left, the progress the number of progressives, and finding the votes in the middle is really very difficult, tricky. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to say the odds that this goes to the X date and we breach, meaning the Treasury can't pay everyone on time, uh, is not inconsequential. I put it. One in four at this point. Still, you know, better than even odds they get this thing done in time. But I'll have to say one in four just feels really uncomfortable to me. Yeah, I mean, we all recognize that there is room for error. Even if we do get a handshake deal between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden, it still needs to make it through both chambers of Congress exactly to your point. And, of course, we had, Joe, this tweet from Senator Mike Lee Mm -hmm. earlier today saying he will use every procedural tool at his disposal to impede a debt ceiling deal that doesn't contain substantial spending and budgetary reforms. So we have to keep in mind that a deal is really just part one. But on the subject of those spending and budgetary reforms, Mark, Joe was talking about the research you put out, you know, when when the Limit Save Grow Act was just passed. If we're now talking about spending cuts, more of a a two-year kind of deal, something more moderate, how could the forward-looking economic picture be different in that case? Well, uh, it'll be a drag on growth. I mean, I think if it were, you know, let's say 23 spending levels, the 2023 fiscal year spending levels, uh, and uh, frozen at that, uh, so that would be 
no growth in nominal discretionary spending for 2024-2025, then you know obviously that that's more of a headwind than the current uh, the current budget. But it's not enough of a headwind, I think, to put, push the economy into recession. Um, so that's 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 manageable. That's doable. I mean, if there's outright cuts, um, then it becomes a lot more tricky. And as you pointed out, if you get limit safe grow, which was put spending back to fiscal year 2022 levels and grow it out at 1% per annum, that that is a much bigger hit and recession becomes much more likely. So it's, a, you know, obviously the, the economy is struggling. It's a, uh, working really hard to stay out of recession. And, you know, any kind of weight you put on it makes it more likely it will go into recession. Of course, we don't know where the cuts would be, right? They're, they're, they're negotiating o- over top-line figures, as we call them, Mark. So could this potentially change when the appropriations folks get together and actually lay out where these cuts would go? Yeah, sure. I, I think you're right, uh, Joe. And, and also maybe the timing. I mean, uh, the timing here is a bit unfortunate because, it, you know, under, on paper it would begin at the start of the new fiscal year. Fiscal year 24 begins in October, the fourth quarter of the year. And that's when most economists, you know, the consensus is we're going into recession, debt limit or not. I think Bloomberg's in that camp. Um, that, uh, you know, you're, if you get cuts in the fourth quarter, that, you know, makes it much more difficult for the economy to avoid an economic downturn. So maybe they could finesse it. Um, obviously, the politics of everything are vexed, including that. Uh, but they could push it out a little bit and, you know, kind of uh, smooth it out a little bit. That would, I think, be better for the economy. Well, and of course, there's the question of what happens to the economy in the event that we see something akin to 2011 and potentially a downgrade of the United States' credit rating. Fitch putting us all on watch with this negative watch uh, that it put out in the last 24 hours. Mark, how concerned are you that the credit rating ratings agencies would do something like S&P Global did 12 years ago? Well, let me, let me first say, Kayla, I'm not in the rating agency, so I don't have any specific insight here, uh, and each rating agency has a different set of uh, methodologies for determining, you know, what to do. Uh, I'm most versed on Moody's policy, and Moody's is pretty clear uh, that uh, a downgrade would only occur if the Treasury did not pay on the debt. If the Treasury did not prioritize the debt payments, uh, then uh, that would be the fodder for a downgrade. But I think the odds of that are zero. I, I can't at least initially, I, I just don't see the Treasury not paying on the debt uh, uh, because it would create downgrades and then a cascade of downgrades because every entity that's backstopped explicitly or implicitly by the federal government would be downgraded. So uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you know, which are, who are key to the, the housing mortgage markets, the federal home loan bank system key to the funding, particularly in the banking system today, given the crisis that they've been, you know, grappling with. Every SIFI bank, systemically important bank, you know, think J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America, municipalities. I mean, the list is long, and it would be chaos. And that would be uh, appropriate at that point to say that's catastrophic. That would be the economy's mm-hmm. going to evaporate at that point. So I just don't see them doing that. I think they they will prioritize debt payments and then everyone else will get paid. Like, by the way, that, they can't do that forever because I, I suspect they'll get sued. The Treasury will get sued and the, mm. the, the, the Social Security recipient will say, well, why in the world 
did you put the bondholder ahead of me? I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, 83-year-old grandma, and right. you're going to pay a bondholder, like, which could be, by the way, a Chinese bondholder uh-huh. or a Saudi bondholder? Does that make sense to anybody? <laughs> so that's, that's a, a, a near-term kind of workaround to, you know, chaos, but it's only a temporary workaround. Not the best politics. I do wonder, Kaylee, what Mark Zandi pictures in his head when he considers the economy evaporating, mm. to use his word. I don't want to know what You don't want to go like. there, Joe. No, you I really just don't. don't want to go there. Because I bet, really yeah, that's a, that's a horror <laughs> show. It's pretty dark. <laughs> what's, the, what's different this time, Mark? Because, you know, when you go back and, and, and recall what happened in, in 2011, the downgrade followed the deal. Uh, yeah. It seems the ratings agencies, they'll want to carry this all the way to June 15th and actually have to see a default to, to make a move here. Why was it different when it was fiscal cliff time in 2011? Well, that's a great question. I, I mean, I, if you go back to that 2011 downgrade, I, that was shocking, surprising. I was surprised yes. by it. It didn't make sense to me, to be frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know the, the, uh, the folks at S&P who downgraded you know, pointed to governance and political issues and the long-term fiscal outlook, so forth and so on. But that didn't add up to me to the action that they took. So I, I've always been perplexed by that move. I, I, I actually, just on the merits of it, I don't think it was appropriate. Uh, but, but, um, but I, you know, uh, I don't know what their policy, uh, S&P policies are like now. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I, I don't follow it carefully enough. But I think, the, you know, they're, they're, they're probably much different than they were back in 2011. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned there kind of the long-term fiscal trajectory of the country being a factor in that. And I think we, we don't come around to that point as frequently as maybe we should, that even once we lift the debt ceiling this time, we are adding to a massive debt pile, tens of trillions of dollars. And there are long-term consequences to that, hence the f- effort on the Republican side toward uh, deficit reduction. And of course, on the Democratic side as well, they just like to go about it a different way. But are we paying enough attention to that problem? What are the longer-term consequences there, Mark? Yeah, you, you make a great point, uh, Kaylee. I mean, at the end of the day, this is about trying to uh, put the nation's fiscal path on a sustainable one. And, and it's not. You know, if we don't make changes to spending policy and tax policy, and you do the arithmetic, and of course the Congressional Budget Office, the, the nonpartisan group that does this for a living, it's, it's, the, the outlook is, is really uncomfortable. We, we do need to make changes. And, um, I, you know, the mechanism for doing that is not obvious, but I, I, what I do think is obvious is the debt limit isn't the mechanism for doing that. It just creates mm-hmm. a lot of drama, a sturm und drang. You know, e- even if at the end of the day, uh, we got limit safe grow. That's, that won't come even close to addressing our long-term fiscal problems. They focus on the wrong things, on discretionary spending. And that's not the problem. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, uh, actually, under current law, it, it declined, that spending on discretionary spending declines as a share of GDP. It's really, obviously, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And that's where we need to focus. But you can't do that in the cauldron of a debt limit debate. That's just not possible. So, you know, the debt limit is not the approach. Uh, we, we've got to think about a, de- a different mechanism for, you know, addressing our long-term fo- uh, fiscal problems. You mentioned the entitlements. They're off the table here, uh, which makes this way more difficult, uh, to your right. point, to, to get anywhere. But the Pentagon is also off the table. I wonder, how does defense spending stack up to the entitlements in terms of sort of overall liability here? It, it's it's small. I'm speaking from memory, Joe, but, yeah. you know, I, I'd say... I think non-defense discretionary was probably two, three percent of G, probably closer to three percent of GDP, 
defense is about 3% of GDP. So I, I don't think I'd look there either. It's not about the, the kind of the appropriations and discretionary. It's about the mandatory yes, spending. Right. And, you know, it, it's, and it's not only just the spending, it's really the tax revenue because we're all getting older. Uh, that's, about, that's what Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are all about, getting older and you know, helping take support uh, uh, you know, the disadvantaged and, and the folks that are in poverty. Uh, that's the Medicaid program. And that population, uh, the aging of the population, is even if we spend the same amount of health care for each individual, the demands are going to increase because we just have more older people who need more health care. And so, you know, from that prism, it's about, it's about spending restraint, but it's also about tax revenue. We, we have to make the decision that if we're going to provide the same level of health care as we have historically to our, under, uh, our disadvantaged and our older uh, population, we're going to have to figure out new ways to, to generate revenue. Just quickly, as we have this fiscal conversation, Mark, June doesn't just bring a potential X date. It also brings another Fed decision. How does the monetary policy picture fit in here? Yeah, I think this is one more reason why the Fed may say, hey, time to take a pause. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of things going on here. Uh, I mean, you got the banking crisis, kind of that kind of pushed the sideline here. But that's that's still simmering. I don't know that that's been completely nailed down. That it, and mm. uh, we're going to have to come back to that. You know, inflation is moderating, maybe not as fast as some folks on the Fed would like to see, but it is it is clearly moderating, and the path forward looks pretty good. The economy is moderating again, maybe not as fast as some folks would like, but it, it definitely is. So all the signs to me point to, hey, let let's just take a pause here and see how things play out, and. You know, if inflation turns out to be more stubborn, then we can start raising rates again later in the year. But uh, at this point, I think everything's starting to scream, hey, take a break. Uh, Let's pause. Yeah. I got to tell you, when Mark Zandi gets upset, (laughs) Mark, it's great to have you. Thank you for being so measured and forthright. Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, he's so balanced that when Mark says he's getting more nervous, suddenly I'm more nervous. Same. You, you and me both, Joe. <laughs> Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's unclear if we're going to get a deal at some point between now and the weekend, although based on the timeline we've been discussing here with Mark Zandi and others, it's it's actually imperative for them to get something done in the next 24 hours. they got to get something together before the weekend. 
So yeah. why did they let everybody go is the question. Well, I guess the thinking here is that you have that 72-hour rule in place, right? Speaker mm-hmm. McCarthy has said he's not going to waive the mandate that lawmakers have to have three days to read the legislative text before voting on it. So I guess if you're doing the timing math here, mm-hmm. when you reach a deal, you know you need the three days anyway. That is the stretch of the long weekend, so everybody can still go to the parades and read the bill in their spare time afterward and yeah, then I come bet. back and vote on it after the holiday. Everybody's going to sit down with the bill. Yeah. Funny. So I'm reading this morning. Uh, not everybody loved this idea. Catherine Clark really scolded uh, the Republican leadership for, for letting people go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who was supposed to be in Italy this weekend officiating her, I believe, goddaughter's wedding. Yeah. Canceled the trip and said, no, we're staying here to get something done. It's quite a message to send. And so we wanted to talk to the Congresswoman. She's with us now. Debbie Dingell, the Democrat, of course, uh, from Michigan. I'm sure your goddaughter wasn't happy to hear this, Congresswoman, but why did you make that decision when everybody else is flying away? Well, good afternoon to both of you. Thanks for being Um, here. It's good to be with you, though I have to admit to you, my mood is not great. I understand. I I mean, I've been struggling with this. I, I began to warn them last weekend, right after we had finished the script for the wedding, got everything signed off, that this was happening. But this vote could be very close, and every vote is going to matter. And I'm not, I mean, I'm flying commercial coach like everybody else, and the ability to get back quickly from Italy is not guaranteed. And we don't know when this vote is going to occur. But I also think it's irresponsible for the Republicans to let us leave town uh, when we could default on the loan or meet on our debt ceiling, which we should not be doing. Every person should be paying our bills. We should not be holding our economy hostage. And I've got constituents. I had a constituent who called my office yesterday who I don't know, but she trusts me. And she said, I was going to buy a house. But what happens if you default and the economy tanks? I can't afford this. I can't afford a high interest loan. I mean, people are worried and we've got a job to do and we should be doing it. And my district elected me to be a responsible elected official. And that means I can't, you know, if something to happen and believe me with the luck I've had, my plane would be the one with the plane problem and mm-hmm. I'd be stuck in you know, in an airport overseas, not able to get home and vote. And what's the most important thing in the world to my constituents? Well, I'm sure your constituents appreciate your personal sacrifice to be able to be in Washington if and when a a vote does happen, Congresswoman. But you talk about the worry your constituents are feeling. It seems they're feeling it on Wall Street, too. We were just talking with Mark Zandi of Moody's, who said he is growing more worried at the same time that those negotiating this deal seem to be projecting more optimism. So what is your degree of optimism or pessimism right now? Do you think we're getting closer? This is what I want to say to you. We cannot default. We have no choice. Uh, Republicans have got to come to the table. We have to get this done. I am sick of the drama that happens in this city, the showdowns that we always have. And I, I am just, we have to get it done. We have no choice but to get this done. And we should be getting it done today. We should have gotten it done long before this. But as your economists are telling you, businesses are telling you, my constituents who range from a whole lot of different, my small businesses, my larger businesses, people, my retirees with savings accounts. We know all the people that are going to be impacted by this, people who are on Social Security, 
we cannot do this to the American people, to the American economy. We have to get this deal done. Congresswoman, there's a lot of concern among progressive Democrats about what might end up in a potential deal. We spoke with uh, Congressman Jim McGovern uh, two days ago about this. He said he's a no vote if additional work requirements end up in the deal. Are you, are you worried about what President Biden might agree to? I believe that President Biden is in touch with the Democrats in this caucus. He knows what matters. He is fighting for those values. I believe no matter where you are in the spectrum inside the Democratic Party, we share those same values. And I believe he is going to not agree to anything that the majority of our caucus cannot support, or that's what I, you know, I am very hopeful of. He does know how our caucus feels. I know that. He talks to us regularly. But Congresswoman, as he needs to compromise in theory to get to get a deal done, are you willing to vote for whatever it is that the president does agree to, to avoid a default? I will never say that I will vote for something I have not seen. That is irresponsible for any elected official. Um, I, I know how important it is not to default on the loan, on our debt ceiling. I keep calling those loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, that we cannot default. But I really do have to see what is in that bill and what the impact is going to be on our people. And I think that it is very important that people understand right now that we cannot negotiate a package to appease the far right of the Republican Party who are never going to vote for this agreement anyway. Mm. We need to be negotiating a deal that helps the working men and women of this country across the country. That is what both parties need to be focused on, not to a very far right group of people that are never going to vote for this bill ever. We're talking with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, the Democrat from Michigan on Bloomberg. Congresswoman, you weighed in on the president. Do you believe Speaker Kevin McCarthy is a credible actor on the other side of the table? Speaker McCarthy was elected by the members of his caucus. So he is responsible for reflecting all of that caucus. Uh, so he's the man that's in the room that is deliberating. So he has, it's on his shoulders to also understand that if we default on our, our, our debts, that he has responsibility for it. He is as responsible as anybody else for where we are. Quite frankly, I think the Republicans are holding us hostage. So he's the man they elected. He's the person in the room. He's the one I'm holding accountable, and I have to believe he knows what's at stake. Well, and what else could be at stake is the credit rating of the United States. We heard from Fitch in the last 24 hours that the U.S.'s AAA credit rating has been put on watch negative, and they specifically cited political partisanship. Congresswoman, are you worried that we could see another downgrade? Would it, would, would it be irresponsible of a credit ratings agency, given the deadlock we are seeing in Washington on this issue at the moment, to say that our credit creditworthiness has been impaired? I want to say something to you all that, and, and take a bigger picture. I think the uh, political divide in this country, I think this lack of civility is a, a significant factor every day now in business decisions that are being made. People are looking at states that have more of the political division than other states. They're making decisions about where they are locating plant. I'm a car girl. You know that. Decisions about 
where manufacturing facilities are going to be located, where people are opening their businesses. This is people that you look at the state of Florida and how bitterly divided that they are. I I think we all need to understand, I'm an American first. I'm not a Democrat, or, and my friends on the other side of the aisle are Republicans. We're Americans, and we need to be working together for the American people. This political divide is poisoning us, and it is hurting us in many ways. This is the example today of the dangerous potential downgrade of our credit rating. Yeah. Congresswoman, we can hear the passion in your voice here. What are you going to do in the next couple of days while you wait for something to happen? I'm going to be sitting here in my office in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, my, my godmother's daughter has promised me she's going to send me video live or, uh, you know, uh, yeah. of what is happening. Um, but we need to come together. We need to make sure we never get in this position again. Do we need to look at our spending? Do we need to cut our deficit? Yes. But by the way, I would not, and I'll say this to any of your listeners, I wouldn't take revenue raisers off the table as the Republicans have done. One of the reasons this deficit has increased were the tax cuts that were given to billionaires and corporations in incentives to offshore several years ago. I don't think a minimum tax for a billionaire is something that we should be taking off the table. Uh, so, you know, we're, I think we're also being presented with very false choices. So uh, I hope we never find ourselves in this position again and that we will act to keep from being in this position again. Well, listen, I hope you do uh, get on Facebook Live with your goddaughter. And it's very kind of you to share this moment with us. And I'm very sorry that you can't make the trip to Italy. Would you come talk to us when this is all done? I sure will. It would mean a lot And I'm to around us. all weekend, too. So. <laughs> hey, well, I might just call you. Congresswoman, thank you again. Debbie Dingell, the Democrat from Michigan, with us here on Sound On. The closer we get to the X date, Kaylee, the more passion we're here. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.